All right. Hello, everyone. This is uh, my name is Elliot Gates from the uh, Anthology of Heroes podcast. And today we're going to be discussing the 2012 film, The Day of the Siege, 11th, 1683. Hey, how's it going, guys? Uh, my name is Zach Cornwell. Uh, I run Conflicted, a history podcast. Um, just kind of a brief overview of, of what I do on there. Uh, it's all about untangling history's greatest controversies and and going through kind of the messy moralities that pop up throughout history. Um, I'm coming to you from Dallas, Texas, so uh, we're on we're on uh, Central Time here. But uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Victoria Sadowski. I do Smoke and Shadow podcast, where I talk about religious uh, mythology and folklore history while getting a little high as I talk about these things. Um, but mainly, my point of my podcast is to sort of figure out how we got to where we are now by the history that led us here. And I am uh, Tyler Ermintrout. Uh, I'm on the podcast, uh, The History Boys. Um, uh, my podcast is kind of a, a hangout uh, style podcast where uh, me and uh, me and two of my friends uh, kind of listen to our, our the fourth in our group, who's the host of our show. And uh, he's kind of an arm, arm, armchair historian who uh, takes us through uh, various, uh, some lesser known, some some more major historical events, and uh, and you know, and we kind of uh, react. Did anyone know what this film was about before I suggested it to you? Or nope, nope. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. So, like, the siege of Vienna is kind of toted as the last great trial between Crescent and Cross. So, it's a super interesting historical event, and I really like it. And I came into the film expecting good things, and I was sorely disappointed. <laughs> but, um, I think it was pretty average on the whole. I thought the story was pretty bland, hard to follow. I think the criticism online is there's way too much CGI. Um, but for anyone kind of tuning in, the story follows the – it's kind of a two-parter. It follows the life of an Italian monk, I think it is, uh, and he kind of – is instrumental in, uh, I guess, guiding the events that lend that lead itself to the the successful defense of uh, Vienna in the 1600s from the uh, ever advancing Ottoman Empire. I okay, but, so I, I just so first of all, the only good thing about this movie, uh, in my mind, is F. Murray Abraham brings it so hard every <laughs> scene he's in. He is a consummate professional, and what I mean by that is, if he gets paid, he will show up and he will act his ass off. Was he the um, monk? Yeah. He was the monk, yeah. I, I just yeah, felt he like good. he he was he was I, I feel like he was playing to win. Um as far as the CGI goes, I think the biggest issue is I felt like everything was it, there was no lighting continuity. It was like the backgrounds were lit one way, the characters were like studio lit, like backlit, so they had these hard halos around them that made it look like it, it made it look like it was like a Star Wars fan film. It, they should they should focus on the fact that it's a, about the siege of Vienna because I feel like how often uh, uh, Karam uh, Mustafa uses specifically the phrase "I'm going to turn churches into mosques." makes yeah. it sound like an evil plot from like G.I. Joe or something like that, <laughs> yeah. like a Saturday morning yeah. cartoon. He did say that line probably at least three to four times. and it, it, It's in the opening crawl of the movie. <laughs> yeah, the movie seems to have a very uh, uh, tortured relationship with, with religion and what it wants to say. But going back to your first point, the uh, F. Murray Abraham, he anchors the entire thing. I mean, mm -hmm. he just 
the monk, the guy who plays the monk, who's he's been in a, bun- a bunch of stuff, actually. He's been in uh, a lot of productions here in the States, but um, he does a great job. He brings it throughout. But like that said, the performances <laughs> across the board are really, really uneven. The one that pops into my head is the um, the uh, deaf the, the deaf and oh, dumb yes. girl that are, oh. you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. The grunting, yeah. the grunting, like every scene is just grunting. Uh. I mean, yeah, it's that that whole thing. I could that that relationship um, between between her and uh, I suppose her 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 husband Abul. Like, Abul, yeah. yeah. He's he's supposed to be like a point of view character, and I I thought they were gonna do something kind of interesting because you know uh, when Marco shows up, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a bit, but like he like stops the mob from killing him, and you're like, oh cool, like it's like doing like uh, Islamophobe like uh, Islamophobia like kind of like post nine eleven like United yeah. States kind of allegory thing. And then he sits down and has a conversation where he's like, oh. <laughs> you know, I studied Islam a lot. And I'm like, oh, he's going to be like, we're not so different, you and I. And instead he's like, someday you'll figure out that Christianity is way cooler. Oh, and I was yeah. like, oh, this is, they're setting something up. So in the third act, he's going to realize they're not so different. Never fucking happens. Like, no. Never yeah, happens. No. no, yeah. Nobody learns anything in this movie. <laughs> No. There's a there's a line uh, that they say during that exchange. I think Abul says something like, you know, all lights are true. And then you expect yeah. the monk to be kind of like, oh, yes, I can see that. And maybe that ends in some character development. But no, he, he, he retreats to his uh, his his end of the corner. And he's like, no, there is only one light. And then like, it, yeah, we and never then leaves. he's like, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he just pieces <laughs> out. He smells and he turns to the camera and he's like, no way, bro. And just bounces. <laughs> Can we can we just talk about also the fact that like these religions all stem from Judaism, right? And yeah, they right. worship the same God, and it's like, oh yeah. my God, yeah. Because yeah. Allah is just the word in Arabic for God. I don't know how the Ottomans felt at this point in history about their relationship to the Christian the Christian world, but it, traditionally they would see Christians and and uh, Jews as people of the book, right? It all stems mm. from that same Judeo Christian tradition. Um, but I don't know if really the animus at the time of the siege was motivated by just political enmity or like if there were actual, uh, I guess, um, I don't know, religious uh, gripes. But that, no, that's a good point. It's a good point. It's, that, that was the whole thing, wasn't it? The golden apple, taking the golden apple, right? I don't know if that was actually, um, I don't know how accurate it was. I know the Constantinople was mentioned, you know, and that was something mm-hmm. that was there to be taken. But I don't know about Vienna. I think that was just something they added in. Yep. Mm, probably. Because I, I, I tried to whole... look that up too, and it just, you couldn't find anything of like referring to it as being this hub that, you know, it was in a sense, but I mm. feel like you said Constantinople was probably the real hub at the time. I just wanted to go through, I think my second favorite character was probably Emperor Leopold and just like how foppish he was. That uh, was, yeah. he was kind of a bit of a saving grace, even if he was in those like scenes where. There was it just looked like a, a zoom background. Him yeah, in front of yes. these like golden like you know dining halls and stuff like that. I'm like that just and then you've got these cheap looking candlesticks in the middle that just contrast yeah. so sharply to it. I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. I, this is the second time I've watched it and I didn't remember it being this bad. And uh, my, my my girlfriend came in at one point after hearing all that grunting and she's like, what are you watching? Because that woman just continually grunting yes. over and over again. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. And like, I, Leopold was probably 
probably the best source of comic relief throughout the movie. Some of it was mm. unintended, of course, but yeah, I mean, he was just bathed in flop sweat the entire time, just freaking mm. out. And then mm-hmm. there was that one moment where he um, he decides to flee Vienna and he leaps in the carriage. And it, I think his sister wants to, sit, to stay, the Duchess. And she's like, well, I'm going to stay. And he's like, okay, suit yourself. And then yeah. like the door <laughs> claps shut and he's like off into the distance. So, I mean, <laughs> you know. There's yeah. just so many choices when they introduce them. Because, well, first of all, you would think that they would be introduced a bit sooner. They're introduced probably about 30 minutes into the movie. And mm. um, they're, they're painted as like completely clueless. They're really mean to Marco and the other monk. Specifically, yeah. the du- they, they give the Duchess a full character arc in the space of like 15 minutes. They show up and she's like, I hate these monks. And then she's like, I'm really sick. And then Marco's like, boom, you're healed. She's like, we got to listen to these monks. And it's like, <laughs> it happens in the space of about, I feel like it's like 15 minutes. I'm like, doesn't this whole thing take place in the same year? Like they, yeah. they put the date. It's all 1683. But like, and, the, and then the, also her husband looks like, like he looks like Henry Cavill's like stunt double. And then with like the poorest character makeup I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I loved how he guard. came in. Yeah, the smallpox guy, and he just like walks in. He's like, "Hi, I have smallpox." It's like, "Yeah, mate, we noticed." Like, why was that the first thing you said? No one was going to bring that up. He's, he's yeah, getting he's, it out I of the way. Have, I see you have noticed my smallpox scars, and the monk's like, "Oh well, now that you pointed it out, yeah, I guess, I guess I did." I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah, I, I was going to say, did anyone notice that? I don't know what the rod the Kara Mustafa was carrying. Around. It looked like a two dollar like prop. Like the yeah. big golden rod he had, I was like, "What is mm-hmm. that?" I swear you could see like the plastic like flecking off on it. He's like, "This is the holy rod of Islam" or something like. All right, yeah, you could you could see a- the Party City receipt dangling off. Of yeah. the <laughs> it was. It's not great. I feel like the costumes didn't look bad, but the props looked awful. They were on they were on mm. par with the the CGI. Mm-hmm. I just choices were made. Choices were made across the board. Um, Money saving. Yeah. <laughs> or, or on the wrong things. Because I agree that yeah. the, the costumes looked all right, I thought, in some of them. Particularly some of the Ottoman costumes. I quite enjoyed them. But then yeah. once it got back to just some of the other stuff, I was like, Phew. did you think it was a fair portrayal of Christianity and Islam? Do you think it was biased in some way? Vic, why don't you go first? <laughs> <laughs> you look like you've got uh, something to say. <laughs> um, yeah, it was definitely a sort of, not intensely, but you could definitely pick up a lot of pro-Christian notes in it, especially, again, with the whole, like, villainous uh, Mustafa sort of realm where he's like, I just want to take these things. And it's like, there was probably other elements in it. And yes, a lot mm. of it was probably religious. But this is post-Renaissance by, I want to say, about 100 years, maybe, around there, 50 mm. to 100 years and during the renaissance all these cultures and religions were sort of like bouncing off of each other and there was this whole spiritual sort of awakening and so i feel like politics definitely have you know influence over that but the movie sort of portrayed just like a more christianized perspective like again when uh when marco's like no there's only one light and it's like but you're missing the historical fact that these are kind of like Islam is a later branch of Judaism, whereas Christianity is a slightly earlier branch of uh, Judaism. Mm. And you're just getting a whole lot because a bull dies and his character really doesn't serve a purpose other than 
being the butt end of a joke, which I thought was yeah. a little weird. Yeah. Uh, because the beginning when he stops the fight, he's like, no, you can't hurt a bull. He's a man. He's a good man. Like that started something. But in the end, it served to sort of make the Christian aspect look like, oh, they're better people mm. because they understand yeah. these things. That whole character just, he, he shows up to make that point and then immediately is like, I got to go back to Istanbul, you know, like, like, see, some see, you later, see you later, sweetie. And then he's like <laughs> immediately there. He's immediately there. And then in command of an army too. Yes. Yeah. Integrated Somehow. into the forces. Like he's carrying yeah. the, the banner of like, you guys should surrender. Like he's that yeah. messenger, which I don't know how he <laughs> yeah. got that gig, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> And and then from there, like, there's the whole thing where, where his wife uh, gets captured and they're like, this is probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. So the guards are behind her. And so she can only see his face and she can't hear. And they're like, if you don't know, we're going to, like, throw her with, like, the comfort women. And she can clearly all of a sudden hear because she's reacting. And he's like, never seen her before in my life. <laughs> then they cut to this shot. And I laughed out loud because it's this massive pen with thousands of women in it. And they throw her in and close the door. And I was like, wow, guys. Yeah, it was um, literally a pen. Like it yeah, wasn't yeah. It was, wasn't a metaphorical pen. It was a genuine pen. Yeah, it was like a cattle <laughs> pen. And they throw her in. And then like the next time you see her, they're getting her out. And they don't show any like what it meant for him to have to say, never mind, I know her. Or, like, something. I feel like almost there was, like, a producer note being like, you got to get her out of that pen. We're not going to give you the money to <laughs> yeah. this movie. We're but not doing stayed. this scene anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't like where the story's going. Get her out. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, like, it, it just felt, it felt, like, really weird and unearned. And there's a lot of things that just kind of happen in the movie. Um, mm. And I, I always wondered while watching it, and I didn't, unfortunately, didn't have the time to, to really look into it or if the information's there, but, like, if some of these things happened because it's in the history and the filmmaker felt the need to be like, Oh, I got to put this in. Cause it's like a historical detail. Um, like the Duke mentioning his, his smallpox or, you know, um, I don't know. There, uh, or like the vizier's son, like there's like certain things that like don't really need to be there at all. And it wouldn't change. It like doesn't change the story. And it's no, no, there's no context for that. Like when they talk about like, oh, he saved you when he was a child. It's like, what was going on that you met each other? They do not explain that. It's just like you yeah. get a flash yeah. of them in front of a ship. He gives them a necklace and you're like, but why? Like what's happening here? Like what did you go through to get to that point? And now you're like, it just doesn't make sense at all. Doesn't even yeah, bring apparently. the necklace with him. <laughs> yeah, no. Right. Yeah, you're right, actually. <laughs> Apparently that was completely fabricated, that relationship, that like background that they knew each other and there was like a life-saving anecdote. Like apparently that was just, they just made that up. At least that's what I found in my research. But um, back to your kind of initial question, Elliot, about the kind of the, the way they handled religion in the movie. I thought, and I'll just speak to one aspect of it. I'm curious if you guys noticed this as well. They seem to take the monks, um, I guess, powers very literally, right? Like mm -hmm. in the beginning, they're like, um, you know, he says, look, I'm just a, a messenger. I don't have literal healing powers. I can't do that. But then the blind man <laughs> is made to see in that exact same scene. And then later when the Duchess has her affliction, which they never specify what it is, um, that's healed miraculously overnight too. But ironically, he doesn't heal 
the deaf girl, <laughs> like it feels like that would have yeah. been a thing to, yeah. uh, I, I don't know. I just thought it was very odd that they treated that stuff as literally he's able to do these things or it just miraculously yeah, it was, happens. I think that's true. Actually, it was kind of meant to be, oh, look, uh, here's the subtle power of Christianity that we don't need to brag about, but look how impressive it is. Also, you mentioned you d- you didn't see what was wrong with that woman. There was. That was a horrible scene where she had like a necrotic like body. Did anyone see that? Yes. Like, she's, in bed, she's missing like half her like chest cavity. You're like, wow, okay, this monk's got some powers. No, they never, and they never specify what she's suffering from. She's just like, just, I guess, she's, rotting. I, I, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Smallpox. Yeah, she like, says it's overnight. eating me from the inside out. And I'm like, I, and I was hoping that like, there'd be some royal doctorish dude who would be like, oh, like she's got whatever the, the name for, I don't know, dysentery, not dysentery. I don't know. Like some kind of flesh eating virus at the time. Like, so it'd have some kind of context. And once again, I'm like, is this, is this something that happened in history? Is there any kind of like recorded, like, you know, account of this happening? Because I thought it was really weird that like, yeah. And that time Marco straight up uses like monk magic to heal her. The opening, when he hears the blind guy, he seemingly does that on accident. Like he's not even trying. They're far away from each other. and And it's as he's immediately like saying like, Hey, I can't like do magic guys. And then the guy's like, I can see again. And he's like, what do you think of that? I lied. (laughs) Okay. So first of all, uh, the, I, the filmmaker intentionally was trying to draw parallels and you can find it in the, the Wikipedia. He was trying to draw parallels between this and nine 11. Yeah. And the only so he fudged a day he he fudged it a day earlier cuz it actually happened on September 12th. And also I, I we we were speculating uh Elliot and I were speculating that he did this because he was hoping to sell this movie in the west. Like he was like this is going to be like a Hollywood blockbuster. And so I'm going to I'm going to make it on September 11th and make it like about like essentially a Muslim invasion of the west. So like maybe oh, Americans God. will really like it, but it's like eleven years too late. Like if if it and but somehow looks like it was like it came out in like nineteen ninety one and was like a major mm. TV movie. I yeah. I can only speculate that it had something because the budget was thirty. It was I guess if you all said and then converted to dollars, it would have been about a thirty million dollar movie. Um, mm. It seems like a lot of money. But um, at this point, I believe, because it came out in 2012, Game of Thrones existed. Game of Thrones cost $10 million per episode. Yeah. So the qualitative difference, I mean, so three hours of Game of Thrones cost the same amount of money as two hours of this. So I don't understand (laughs) what happened. Uh, Also, apparently there were 10,000 extras, despite the fact they frequently just, like, copied and pasted, like... It like was the pen, 10, the one in the pen. That, that was, was the that? one yeah. in the pen, all those extras. That's, that was yep. them. It was, yeah, it was like 10,000 women. women. <laughs> and then the soldiers were just like cut and paste, cut and paste. One other thing I want to point out that's really bizarre is Karam's talking about um, uh, Sobieski, uh, the king of Poland. And he's like, He's old. He can't even get on his horse. And for some reason, it's like these fast cuts of him looking it's like him, like yeah, super it on. formidable. And yes. like, yeah. and I, I was like, is this because 
the director's Polish and he's like, we got to make our guy like. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Because yeah. when they show up, even when they show up at the end, it's like this like, you know, Riders of Rohan, like Lord of the Rings mm. moment. And it's like, they're here. And he's like this badass who's like, I got to take control of the army. And like, so I wonder if like, he's like a really, really popular historical figure in that country. And so he like, is. He okay. is actually. It's funny you bring that up. Yeah, yeah. so he's huge there. And um, maybe I think, uh, Vic, you've got some ancestry from there or something, don't you? I'm a ski. Right, okay. Oh, yeah, I was going there you go. So you're probably um, related to him, right? <laughs> I mean, it's all the same gene pool, let's be real. But I, he was probably my favorite character, I'm not going to lie, even if like what you saw of him was very little. And I do have to point out a random historical factor comparison because that moment where he's like, we're going to take the high ground and everyone's like, we can't get our cannons up there. And he's like, you're going to do it. Washington did that during the Revolutionary War. He did the same thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he was like, we're going to take the high ground at Bunker Hill. And they were like, maybe it wasn't Bunker Hill, but it was one of the battles that he fought. And everybody was like, we're going to get people killed getting those cannons up there. And he's like, yeah, we are. Let's do it. And they won that (laughs) battle. And it was you know, nice little juxtaposition, but um, when it comes to Sobeski, like that sort of mentality that he has of like, I'm taking control. We're doing it. We're not indulging in the drama. I'm not even going to insult the people I don't like. We're just going to get it done. That's a very Polish mentality. That's something that like, I can even see on my side of the family of like, no excuses, get it done. That's just a very Polish thing. So they really brought out that sort of cultural integrity in him. To build on that, there definitely is a lot of mythologizing around Sobieski and particularly the the winged hussars, right? That is a mm. huge kind Very of angelic, right? Totally, yeah. I mean, that's like a really big the, the the cavalry charge, right, at the end of the siege of Vienna. That's like it's touted as like according to something I found, one of the biggest cavalry charges in in history. Mm. It's like this big mythic, like you said, riders of Rohan moment, and that is just a huge cultural touchstone uh, for the Polish people, definitely. But uh, I thought they did actually a pretty good job depicting the winged hussars. Those are like a really, um, I guess, iconic uh, military unit from history. And uh, like they definitely put a lot of love into the costuming and it had like, I thought the wings were done nicely. They did like the leopard skins and the lances pretty well. Um, That's really like, you know, in the weeds, tactical stuff. But I thought that they, they definitely threw a lot of money and attention and care at that part of it, if nothing else. But yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's probably where about two thirds of the budget went on those winged hussars. But it looked it, they looked good, they looked crisp. But like Sobieski coming in and they're like, oh, he's not going to have a plan. He's just going to say we do it. And then it's exactly what he does. He just kind of comes in, he's like, right, we're doing it. It's like, yeah. okay. <laughs> and then they were saying, like, he's, oh, we don't want to invite him because he's going to come in and he's going to demand he takes control of the whole thing. That's exactly what he does. It's like, right, you mm-hmm. proved his point, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I would have liked to have seen a little more character development for Sobieski. Mm. I would have liked to see his how he came to the decision to help out. Because obviously there's like a lot of political tension apparently between you know him and Leopold and all this stuff. I would have liked to have seen things from the Polish point of view more and seen how they arrived at the decision of like, okay, let's go, let's go help them out. How they came to the like the Theoden, let's light the fires type of situation. Um, but yeah, that's all I was going to say. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. 
Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcasts from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought with Marco, as as the movie went on, his kind of um, screen time became increasingly irrelevant, and he was kind of like one of those people who's like, "Oh, I don't like drama," but he actually did like drama. Like that scene where he's on the top of the hill. Uh, was yeah. he trying to like call down the apocalypse or something? I was like, mate, get out of the way. There's wing to SARS coming, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah that makes sense. He gives the Braveheart speech too, where he makes it really clear. He's like, he's like, yeah, you're fighting for like your country and stuff, but really like you're fighting for God. Like this is all about like religion and it just, it, it kind of took the air, and I feel like everyone's like, "Yeah, we are. We're we're fighting for Christianity." I, I was a bit curious to see what you guys thought of some of the dialogue. Now, I don't know if it was dubbed, but some of the scenes with like the background actors, like I remember this one scene. I think it was when they were walking up the hill. It's like, "Look, he's over there. Yes, let's follow him there. We will go over there." It's like this just seems like really staged. Did anyone yeah. notice that? Yeah, yeah a lot I of the lines just... seemed. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're fine. It was just. I had that moment too with like some of the like actors in the four too, who would just like speak in a way where you were like constantly trying to look at their lips to see if it matched up. Like that's the feeling you got. Yeah. I think that was, I think that just goes back to the fact that they just didn't have a lot of budget to work with. So they maybe had a limited amount of takes and just the actor didn't deliver the line the way that they wanted. So they're like, well, okay, let's bring them back in studio dub over it. But yeah, I, I noticed that too, constantly. I mean, it was just a thread throughout the entire movie. People would speak and it wouldn't be quite right. Um, mm. But yeah. I think money and time are probably the two things that are that that are probably hurting this movie the most. And maybe a filmmaker that's incredibly inexperienced working with a lot of VFX uh, and maybe like a fix it in post kind of uh, mentality. Because that's, I mean, I don't know. I... I, I can't possibly explain why there's so many like technical issues with this movie. Um, so, I mean, uh, I think what happened was it's like, you know, it, on Instagram, something when you're editing a photo and you look at the photo at the start, you chuck on a few filters and you go, oh, this doesn't look too bad. And then when you look at it compared to the normal photo, it looks like almost like nuclear waste. The sky is like purple because they yeah. seem to just tune up this CGI to the point I mean, we might as well talk about the end scene now. 
that was the most over the top, like all the snow falling, you know, mm-hmm. the person turns around and the, the snow is still falling the same way. I'm like, right, th- is this all just a huge green screen? What did everyone think of that, that final scene? Um, I was focused on the fact that I was so confused by the son's character arc <laughs> when yeah. he walked yeah. away, yeah. like I'm now angsty for life. It's like, <laughs> I think you should be crying because you just watched your father die, but okay. Yeah. Be a, be a like, yeah, I'm going to go walk away and do something about it. Like, it seemed like it was almost a segue for a second movie of like, you'll <laughs> see God him come us. back. Yeah. And it's like, technically, historically, uh, there was a revamp of the Ottoman Empire trying to go west, but it was way less successful. And it was brought on by Mustafa's successor. And I don't know if he was a sort of like the one to be like, this is what, but he failed. So it was kind of like a big moment when you weren't sure if he was the successor and if that applies to history or if it's just like, he's mad now and that's what you're left with. And it's just very, mm. it was very odd. Yeah, I was that's confused how the movie- by ends like i can't wrap my head i was like oh they're gonna like go around to all the point of views and show kind of where everybody lands at the end of this siege and then it just fades to black and it's like directed or there's like a message that's like for all my homies that like didn't make it out of the ghetto or whatever i can't remember what it says it says something that's (laughs) like but it's also in a font that looks kind of like looks kind of like edgy like it looks very modern like it doesn't fit the tone and but yeah, then it's it just like, like the terminator logo almost yeah yeah and then it's yeah. like directed and written uh you know by by uh, uh renzo martinelli and uh and i was like really this is the end of the movie like they're gonna end it on this note like and also like they, they clearly were like we can't afford like i and once again i don't know if it's a history thing but the whole like strangling him with a handkerchief thing, like, is that how they? Was that like a, a Ottoman Turkish yeah. thing? Okay, cool. Because I thought they just couldn't afford like a gallows or something, like, <laughs> or like the effect, and they're like, we got to do this like as cheap as possible. Like, what do we have lying around here? Uh, yeah. We got a tablecloth. Let's do it. No, but yeah. apparently that is that is the traditional ritualistic way in which Ottoman, um, you know, high ranking Ottoman officials were killed and an mm-hmm. event of failure or whatever. But I was curious, or I was, um, I guess, confused by the son's emotional reaction as well. Just going back to what we talked about a second ago, like he, he seemed almost like good. <laughs> like he seemed almost like contented with his father's death. There wasn't any kind of like reaction. He just walked away angrily. I don't know. That was such an odd, it was just a weird direction. Yeah. I picked up on that too, right? Because the whole movie is him being upset, you know, and a real man doesn't cry from his dad and stuff like that. And then he's like, I love you, dad. I'm proud of you, whatever. And then he dies. He's just like, yeah, mic drop. See you, dad. <laughs> you know, get get your corpse home. And I was like, what was that meant to be? Was that meant to be him kind of, he, you know, took in all the lessons of his father, how to be like a real hard ass. And now he's finally doing it. I was just like, was that it? The only thing I can think of is that it was a it was a reaction to his failure. Like he was like, "Dad, you totally botched this thing. You did not capture the golden apple. Therefore, you disgraced us. So be it." Uh, you know, I, yeah. so I, I I don't know. That's the only thing I could I could come up with. Yeah, that. and maybe like uh, this is how like the 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 kind of the the animosity. Uh, gets perpetuated like a cycle of violence. Now I'm going to grow up and become Vizier and I'm going to get him this mm. next time. Like, I don't know if they were like, cause he, he walks away so angry and determined. Uh, it's, it, uh, I don't know if it was maybe like, I don't know. I, I don't know why they did anything in this movie. 
And then it cuts. You you see you see the vizier, and he's riding in, and you're like, okay, this looks pretty threatening. But then for some reason, they like start cutting to close-ups of extras that are like wearing like less detailed-looking armor. They're like. <laughs> They're looking kind of bored. Some dudes are like right down the barrel into the camera. And I'm like, stop looking at those guys, man. Those guys need to be like way far away. Like you shouldn't be able to see what they're doing because they all look like they don't know that they're being filmed. Like, <laughs> I think we touched this before, but what was everyone's favorite scene, right? We've established there are some real low points, but if you had to pick a high point, what would you say it was? Hmm. I'd the probably fact that say, there's a, a noticeable pause is a bit of a concern, isn't it? <laughs> so I don't know if it was like my favorite scene in terms of like it was great quality or anything, but the one that stuck out to me, I, I wrote it down because it just it was so, I don't know, not unique, but it was striking, was when uh, Mustafa goes, I guess it's like the night before they leave for the battle, and he goes to, I guess, the Hagia Sophia, and he goes in there and there's a seer or a imam of some kind and he's got these blind these really white uh eyeballs and it reminded me of the seer scenes from vikings i don't know if you guys have seen that show like and there's that blind seer who just kind of casts a like a pall of like mysticism over everything and i got i got that from the uh from the blind i guess imam in the Hagia sophia as well they just they made that very kind of creepy um but that scene really went down yeah, there was like a, a a light set, like, and again, I have not been in the Hagia Sophia. I'd like to uh, at some point, but it's all it's completely empty, and uh, it's just this one blind dude who's like, "Yep, bring me your problems. I'll tell you what's up." And he was almost like a fortune teller. I don't know. Again, not a great scene, but it it, it stuck in my memory. I don't know if you guys remember that one too. Favorite scene <laughs> is the cannons up the hill scene because it almost looks. Like it's Sobieski's fault that they lose that cannon. Like he's like pulling it and like falls over in the rain. And you see like a slow mo, two guys going, whoa, with like really bad 80 yard screams. (laughs) And then the cannon like shatters and they're like, sorry about that, sir. And he's like, we got to keep on going. They're not like, we need seven cannons. And we just lost six. We're going to have to be more strategic. They're just like, this was hard, but we did it. I think I was just going to quickly um, say, I think my favorite scene was probably the actual charge itself. Um, as, mm. as you were saying before, Zach, I, to, to this death, I still think it is the biggest cavalry charge in all of history. And it was kind of very uh, angelic, right? You've got this like golden light shining. I think they might've even had that kind of angelic choir in the background. And I'm sure to the people being besieged, it probably seemed like it too, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. more you really they didn't show a lot of what was happening in the city with starvation and stuff like that, but it was getting pretty rough in there. I know there was like mining and countermining going on, so it was a shame we didn't get to see a bit more of that. But not necessarily a good scene, but one that stuck in my brain is when Marco first comes to uh, Vienna and. You know, the emperor is like, I want you to be my spiritual advisor, which is something that happened. This this is something that's just a theme that happens throughout history where an emperor or a king or whoever is like, I need a spiritual advisor. And so he asks Marco, like, do this, do this. And this is just like hilarious to me because this is usually not the way that it goes. Sometimes it does. 
But for someone, and this happens in history, it's not just the movie, like he definitely does this where he's like, okay, I'll be your spiritual advisor, but you need to make alliances. Like he prioritizes the political Mm. aspect before any spiritual stuff, despite him being so devout to Christianity. He's just like, in the way he's talking to him, he's like, you need alliance. Like he's getting a headache, like trying to talk to him. Like (laughs) you need to talk to Sobeski. And he's like, I won't talk to Sobeski. He's like, you're gonna have to. It needs to be done. And he's just being very realistic in that scene of like uh, just a spiritual advisor having to deal with the like, no, you need to really deal with your actual problems right now. And that's political, not spiritual. I'm sorry Mm. to say. But at the same time, it does come into the whole, this is a very religious war at the same time. So he is thinking more politically in that context. Mm. Uh, That's a good point. And that is something he does throughout like, because I did a little background research and he healed someone or healed a woman who wouldn't produce a male, which is the actual history, which is even suckier that, you know, <laughs> oh, like my wife won't make a male heir. So I need a priest to bless her. And uh, it worked. And so he became a spiritual advisor, but did a lot of political stuff too. And he is the one who got the emperor to align with Sobeski because they hated each other. And he was that sort of unifying principle to be like, no, we need to cut the BS and get down to it. And probably the Christian mm. aspect of like, we're all Christians here. Come on. was definitely pro- probably one of the things that got him to do that. Yeah, he did. It did seem to be, look, I mean, Emperor Leopold looks like he would be a very difficult man to to try and talk to. So maybe he deserves a bit of a medal for that one. But um, yeah, I think um, I've read quite a bit on this because it's actually a subject I really enjoy learning about. And um, there was a guy, I think he was mentioned maybe in one of the scenes, I don't know his name, but he was the Duke of Lorraine, which is that district that is in between, I think, Germany and France now. And um, historically, he did so, so much. He he got everyone together. He got all these alliances he like got, I think he got Saxony involved and stuff like that. And I love how even in a, a documentary that's meant to be about the siege, I think maybe he was mentioned in one scene. Um, really interesting guy, actually. I'll see if I can send you the link because this guy did all this stuff in the background, similar to what probably the monk did, but at a more tactical level. Um, but I'm, yeah. According to IMDb, that's the smallpox guy. Oh, oh. is it really? Yeah. Is it really? So okay, rather right. than highlighting the fact that he's like, you know, apparently somebody who was able to unite all these kingdoms uh, with a common cause, he's just like smallpox, right? Like, How about the smallpox? Matt, you know what he was saying? He probably wanted him to cure it. This guy's like curing everything. He's like, can you <laughs> fix this? He's like, I'm on my way, my son, but all the best, you know? <laughs> well, he, the monk has a very real subtle about it. <laughs> he's like hello i have smallpox i don't know if you could do anything about that but uh <laughs> Just wanted to like, leave if that. you could because no one can yeah yeah the the monk has a very spotty track record with miraculous uh healings but he's about 50 percent success rate so i feel bad for the smallpox guy it's Which, better I'm, than my miracle right so <laughs> <laughs> and that was the duke of lorraine Somebody yeah the duke of lorraine yeah okay. i think his yeah, name was charles but maybe i don't know i can't remember I was going to maybe go around and ask uh, final thoughts and uh, what you would give it out of 10 and who would you recommend this, if anyone, to? Okay. Yeah. Um, out of 10, I would give this a uh, a 4 out of 10 uh, Polish wings. Uh, I think there is merit to it. <laughs> there is merit to the movie. It, it, does, it does kind of boil down the broad strokes of the historical event 
fairly briskly, you know, I mean, you kind of get, it, it's good for people who are not familiar at all with the event. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't watch it again, <laughs> but I, but you, you can, you can tell that this obviously meant a lot to the people making it. It was certainly a passion project. I read somewhere that it took, you know, I think 10 years to get the funding. Um, and obviously it portrays yeah. an event that's very, very important to Poland and uh, presumably Italy. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think I, I appreciate what they tried to do with it. But if anyone is interested in this event, I would just say read a bunch of books about it because there's lots of great books detailing this event and how epic and drama packed it is that this movie kind of didn't didn't quite give it its full due. I'm unable to give this a, a you know, um, uh, uh, three or four F. Murray Abrahams out of ten. I, I have to give it a binary like. Like I, I wouldn't watch it. Like if I could go back, it, it, the thing is, is I would, <laughs> I, I would go with Zach's kind of like uh, recommendation. It, it, it's an interesting event, and I think that there's um, there's a lot of really fascinating things. And I'm happy that I know that this happened, so I can go find more out about it that isn't this movie. Um. Well, as a movie. Two, two out of 10 as a drinking game, 10 out of 10, because you yeah. can do a lot with this movie if you want to drink to it. So like anytime there's like way too much Christian propaganda just thrust in there, take a shot. You're probably going to be hammered by the end of it, if not have to get your stomach pumped. So yeah, depending on what you're using it for, like I would definitely recommend it for someone who wants to make fun of something. <laughs> But as a historical, like if someone wanted to know about this uh, period in time, I would also suggest more documentary style stuff or like, again, reading the books of, you know, different perspectives of the event from different countries to sort of get a more well-rounded idea. But yeah, if someone's like, oh, I heard of this movie, I'd be like, don't waste, don't waste. Don't hear about hours. it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stay away. I think from my perspective, I'm kind of along the lines of everyone else. I'd probably give it about three out of ten green screens. Um, I think there was a lot of <laughs> there, there was a lot. Um, I, I, like you, I could see the director's passion in it, and um, I think it's a really his, interesting historical event. And I think it kind of opens the door to maybe be remade again by someone who has maybe a bit more experience and maybe compress the story down to the siege itself because there's a lot happening there. We didn't really need all that backstory. Um, but yeah, on the whole, it's not something I would probably wish on uh, many people. And like you've said before, there are some super interesting books. I, I know I I've read a few of them myself and that's how it kind of got me onto this. But we're getting so many remakes of movies and, um, you know, reboots of Spider-Man and stuff like that. This I feel like this is something that's waiting to come along and be and be done really well. Give it to Ridley Scott or somebody who's going to like, you know, blow the yeah. lid off it and make like a, a make it make it into the mm -hmm. epic it deserves to be. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, because there's such a good story buried in there. I mean, like mm. it just it, I feel like they just the viewpoints they picked and the plot, the subplots that they chose to emphasize just didn't come together into a compelling story. But like I would like you said, I would love to see it in the hands of like a really competent director well funded by a studio and really given its due because it is a really cool event you know there's a lot of great moments in there yeah and the whole like with certain characters that they really tried to illuminate the complexities with this movie clearly failed that but they you could see that they tried someone else could definitely pull like a whole 
not to bring it back to Game of Thrones, but Jamie Lannister style of certain characters where you see them as being bad people, but then as the story unfolds, you see that they're just very complex people with, you know, certain integrities or certain loyalties that they have to uphold. And that becomes a conflict in certain realms of the story. And I think someone could definitely do that well, but this was a good try. <laughs> here, here. I think, yeah, yeah, I think we'll end it on that. A good try. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Uh, once again, the names are, uh, my name's Elliot from the Anthology of Heroes podcast. We've got uh, Zach from the Conflicted uh, podcast. We've got uh, Vic from the Spoken Shadows podcast and Tyler from the History Boys podcast. Um, thanks very much for tuning in. A huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm, and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards, like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.